you're listening to The Film File. Yes, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. So stick around for some filmtastic geekery. Hello and welcome to The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. And I'm Lee Ford. And I'm Andy Meakin. And welcome to this small corner of the podverse where we can express with love our interesting movies. How are you feeling, Andy? Are you feeling loved up for talking about movies? I'm feeling loved up for talking about movies. I'm feeling a bit, uh, it's that it's that changing of the season period. And so I'm constantly sniffling or you have this random burst of sneezes for no reason. I don't have allergies. I don't have hay fever. And yet, no matter what season it is, as soon as it changes, I suddenly start sneezing for no reason. So it's not hay fever because I get it in autumn as well. And I'm just feeling a bit, I don't know, a bit croaky, but I'm, I'm fine. I'm, I'm lubricating my, my larynx at the moment. So. I was wondering where you're going um, with that sentence. <laughs> I, I was wondering myself <laughs> at one point. <laughs> uh, but I, I, yeah, it's been, I've, I've, had a, I've had a week of watching, well, I've had a week of watching films with my daughter. You know how I love to, we love to have like me, the wife and the daughter, we're, we're going through like, collections of films now we did the mission impossible franchise right. we always go through franchises daughter says she wants to see them so she'll sit and watch them with us and we agree like yeah let's do it and now we're doing the saw franchise and i'm, I'm regretting my life choices at this point in time <laughs> they, they never happened for me they're just not my kind of horror i mean we were talking okay. just before we started that uh, we're going to see the evil dead and i asked you if i could bring a blankie uh, and a cushion oh, to hide behind okay. because that's my kind of horror. I like I like my horror to be supernatural. Yeah, supernatural with the psychological aspects. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. I mean, the first Saw film I still think holds up well. When we rewatched that, I was like, oh, actually, you know, I remember really liking this, and I still really like it. And then pretty swiftly, the franchise drops off a cliff because it went from a four star film from the first for the first one to a two and a half star for the second one one and a half for the third and i've rated the fourth one as one star at this rate we're going to be going into negative figures by source seven it's a, a they're terrible and you need a degree <laughs> in advanced engineering to understand the timeline that you try to set out by the fourth film where it flips backwards to before the films after the films halfway through them re reinterprets how you saw things happening in the previous films just like this is a mess this is not a good film film series and it is by the fourth one definitely just all about oh here's another torture trap let's see how gruesome we can make it not scary anyone who calls them horrors you don't understand what horror is because horror is not gruesome bloody effects horror gets into your mind horror swirls around your chambers in your mind and ruins you like mentally the saw films just make creep you out more than anything else they're just grubby. Yeah, grubby. that's that's a good way of describing them. Grubby. That's how I found them. Interestingly enough, I can't remember who the guy is. I can't remember the name of the actor who plays the the main villain throughout the series. Tobin Bell. Yes, I once shared a drink with him uh, at the Cannes Film Festival just before Saw landed. In fact, they were there uh, with Saw uh, as their entry in, into the into the festival. I I didn't know who he was. And then I kind of recognised he'd been in a film that someone I knew had directed. So we then got chatting and it was a really nice guy. And uh, mm. then he turned out to be, um, well, turned out to be Jigsaw. Yeah. Oh, he'd been a jobbing actor on like TV shows and bit parts in films like for a good few decades. It's only with, when Saw really thrust him into prominence, showing that, you know, you, you get actors who struggle throughout their career and always worry that they're never going to actually hit the big time or find that one role. 
And Tobin Bell was what in it like early late fifties, early sixties when he was casting so. Yeah. And all of a sudden everyone recognizes him. So it's never too late to find your calling in life. It's never too late to become what you want to become. There's the there's the good moral of the day. It's like it's never you too never, late. It's never to too late. Just remember that, folks, when you're down in yeah. the dumps and you're wondering what to do. It's never too late. When you're watching the Saw franchise, the one good thing to take from it is that Tobin Bell achieved his dreams. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's the only thing that's holding me through this franchise. And uh, it's, I don't think, me, I think my daughter's as critical about these films as what I am. Yeah, I've spoken about how she's a chip off the old block. And at the end of each one, she starts mocking like the contrivances and you know how poorly set up it all is. And she's like, well, at least you're not enjoying them. I'd have been disappointed if you were enjoying them. Yeah. But we've still... We're committed to it now. We're going through with it. This is the same as when I committed last year to watching every Sky original last year. Once I commit myself to something, I will go through with it no matter what's happening. And I am regretting it. But we'll be watching the fifth one later. I, I've had a, uh, a tough week, as you know, which is something that we mentioned on the show a couple of weeks ago. So I was at a funeral and I gave the eulogy. But one of the I, one of the interesting things, I won't say one of the good things, one of the interesting things was that I was sat at a table with all of the key players in early music video, and they were all sat around this table chatting about their experiences, and they'd not seen each other for you know several, several years, uh, sometimes mm -hmm. 10, 20 years. And I, and I, I recounted a couple to you uh, the other day. <laughs> And they were so interesting, and, and I wish I could tell you them, but I, I really, really can't because they are—they are so <laughs> well. Some of them are so outrageous, and some of them are so significant to, to those particular uh, that particular era. But uh, it was—it yeah. was what made a, a very dark couple of days a, a lot lighter. Was was listening to some of these, some of these amazing, amazing stories about the early days of music video. And, uh, and just as some of the some of the gossip and silly things that I found out were just truly, truly not just amusing but amazing as well. They were they were at your hair curl, as my mum used to say. <laughs> all the all the behind the scenes anecdotes. That, oh yeah. You know, whenever there's whenever there's a good um, autobiography come out, you're not interested when you're reading an autobiography by a film star as to why they made the career choices that they made. You're more interested on the people that they met along the way, yeah. the stories that they interacted in, and the behind-the-scenes gossip and drama. That's the more interesting aspect. Every autobiography from an actor is all, oh, well, I did this, I studied this, and then I got into this film, and then I did this film, did this film. Skip, skip, skip. We want to know what happened when you clashed with this person on set. We want to know what happened at that drunk after-show party. That's the kind of thing that we all love. That's the kind of thing I was telling you about. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, I, yes, indeed. I wish I could share them with you. They were they were phenomenal, and that it just made very very dark week. Uh, it had a little bit of a little bit of light, but I I, I told Andy some we, of these. We'd things. love to share them with you, but um, we haven't got lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> So last week we set you our uh, socials challenge, which was if you're interested in musicals, what musical would you recommend to somebody who'd, uh, strangely, in, in the uh, what if world of social media, why not, had never seen a musical? What would you introduce them to as your beloved musical? Andy, did we get much in the way of responses? We got a fair scattering of responses uh, this week. Uh, Electric Orange Productions. Uh, said that as it was Easter, it has to be the film version of Jesus Christ Superstar, the rock musical. Oh, yeah. 
wasn't on my list. Directed by the legendary Norman Jewison, yes. who we spoke about last week as the deep dive for Fiddler on the Roof. Fiddler on the Roof, yes. So uh, Norman Jewison's uh, star Ted Neely, who was an, an actor who nearly had a career. Uh, strangely enough, just never went on to anything else. I remember him in an episode of Man from Atlantis. So uh, it never yeah. really landed for him after that. It's okay. It's it's interesting. It's very much of its time. Craig Wright, tech writer, gave us Blues Brothers, Moulin Rouge, and Les Mis. And that's a nice, diverse range. It is. Blues Brothers. Blues Brothers, I, I didn't think of myself. No, no, I'm I, I'm uh, holding my and head yes, in shame. Yes, it's purely a musical. Moulin Rouge is just so fired with energy for a modern audience. And Les Mis is, is what you'd call a traditional classic kind of approach to musical yeah i went back and revisited moulin rouge and i remember loving it the very first time it came out but i had real problems with it when i saw it again i just wanted it to calm down um just just <laughs> take five minutes and go yeah okay and go but it it, it moves at a right old pace uh the real princess suggested chicago dream girls and greece and Greece always makes my list. Never seen Dreamgirls. I love Greece. I've not seen Dreamgirls myself. Chicago. Oh, yeah, I like Chicago. I quite liked it. I've, I've not never revisited it. Uh, I do feel that I, I should revisit it at some point. Yeah, it's good. But yeah, I quite liked it. Um, on Mastodon, Mastodon, Sino gave us Hedwig and the Angry Inch, Ooh. Tommy, and the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Some good stuff as there. A triple Bill. That would be an amazing, absolutely amazing uh, Triple Bill. Sean Baller. Get ready for this, because this was a multi-part thread. It's such a good question. One thought is you need a good musical film, not just a transposition transposition of the stage play. I realise this is a very American list, though I love British musicals too. West Side Story, both versions. Yep. Fiddler on the Roof, 1776. Little Shop of Horrors. Little Shop of Horrors, what a shout. Uh, Sweeney Todd from 2007. If they wanted to show two emblematic ones, it would be West Side Story and The Music Man, both from the same year and showing two contrasting trends in American musicals. And then some of the offbeat favourites, Finian's Rainbow from Coppola. Oh, that is a, a very offbeat. Uh, the King and I. King and I have one of those, a bit like Fiddler on the Roof for me. Never never really landed for me. Tommy, simply put in, Ken Russell is crazy. Phantom of the Opera from 2004. Critique it, but Andrew Lloyd Webber is popular, writes good music, and the direction of that one is very good. And yeah, the 2004 film version. Yeah, it was really well pop polished and really well put together. Les Mis from 2012, Hooper's direction is controversial, but the acting is superb and they sob every time that they watch it. And then a few explanations about their choices. West Side Story, it's a truly timeless yep. work of art. Love, Love both film versions for different reasons. Fiddle on the Roof, the first musical to really capture the Jewish experience. Film is very moving. And Little Shop of Horrors, Howard Ashman was a genius musical writer and the film by Frank Oz was top notch, especially the original ending. And Sweeney Todd, Wanted a Sondheim, didn't have many choices. Tim Burton film. That's why that got the selection. Yeah. No, I wouldn't knock any of those. Uh, apart from Les, Les Mis, I, I never got into Les Mis. It was too shouty. It's very noisy musical. Well, it, it, they recorded it on set. Yeah. Whereas most musicals, they, they use ADR and overdub um, from the studio recording. Hence, it comes across a bit shouty. I, I don't mind Les Mis. I always find that when I watch it, I start off really loving it. I get halfway through it and think, is it ending yet? And it just feels to go on a bit too long, but that's just me. Over on Facebook, my mum put forward Chicago. Uh, so I, I don't know. I, I suggested that it's something to do with the fact that Richard Gere's in it and she's got a huge crush on Richard Gere, but it is a still a fantastic musical. Al B told us the only two that they would suggest is Little Shop of Horrors and Rocky Horror. Yeah, good. Janet Melling, uh, who's my 
older sister. It's a difficult one. Love so many musicals, but the older ones are the best. Seven Bride for Seven Brothers being a favourite, Fiddler on the Roof, but we've also had Rocky Horror onto the list. Helen Blair, uh, she she responded on the film file page and also to my own personal thread. My Fair Lady for a classic musical. I love My Fair Lady. Little Shop of Horrors for something fun. Rocky Horror Picture Show for something fun and a bit naughty. Um, Les Mis, which hits her in a lot of emotions. Elliot Lacey, The School of Rock. There's another one that I never considered. Yeah, yeah. You never, you never think of it as a musical, but it is effectively a musical. Um, Kenneth Blair, I'd have called what he was going to go for, Singing in the Rain as his answer. Oh, it's got everything. Beautiful. It's classic yet contemporary. It's funny with plenty of emotional resonance, timeless performances. From here, someone could go back to the golden age of the 30s or, and 40s or forward in time to some of the newer musical films. Martin Wayne, Blues Brothers again. How did we not even suggest that last week? I, I can't believe I, mean, I didn't mention Singing in the Rain. I can't believe that I, I, that slipped. Mm. And also, um, as you write, Blues Brothers. Uh, Stephen Young, Grease, gets my thumbs up. The Greatest Showman, it's it's fun. Trolls, never never dug the Trolls oh. films. I've never got to them. Uh, Sound of Music, yeah, I've got a lot of love for Sound of Music. Uh, one which I agree with, which you might not, the Eurovision Fire Saga film. Oh, I, I liked it. I, I thought it was very. I thought it was fun. I really did like it. Oh, that's that's nice to know. I I thought I thoroughly enjoyed it, but I've got that love for Eurovision as well. And uh, the new Matilda, um, which I've still not seen. No, I've not. I'm, I'm not. I've heard a lot of good things. Yeah, about I like Devito's version. Um, I, I, it's not really me. And your suggestions? Well, I mentioned um, West Side Story. I was like, I can't believe yes. that I didn't mention Singing in the Rain. I saw the stage version of Singing in the Rain, and even though it, it'll never be as good as as the uh, Gene Kelly yeah. version, which is just sublime. I, I also mentioned La La Land as being a modern musical, which I like an awful lot. I really think some of the mm. songs are absolutely beautiful. I, I love the ending of La La Land. I think it's just an amazing yeah. ending. I think. Um, yeah, got a lot of love for La La Land. Rocky Horror Show would be in there as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, a few of my select suggestions have already been mentioned. Rocky Horror Show, Sweeney Todd, Singing in the Rain. Uh, but I'm also throwing in South Park, the, mu- the movie. <laughs> okay, yeah, that was a musical. Yep. And one of my all-time favourites, Calamity Jane. Oh, I really? I adore Calamity Jane. I have so much fun with that. I mean, it's film. a classic. I, I've watched that so many times through my life. It's so good. It's a it's a Doris Day classic. I fell in love with Doris Day watching that film. And in many ways, she fell in love with you too. Oh, I'd only hope. <laughs> <laughs> if that's how it worked, that if you fall in love with someone on the screen, then Ryan Reynolds would be in my living room right now. Okay, moving on quickly, quickly. <laughs> so what's this week's social challenge? Well, Andy and I are going to be reviewing uh, Renfield later on in the show. And as you know, it stars Nicolas Cage. Now, Nicolas Cage is either uh, an actor that you love, like, or really like. <laughs> so we want to know, what is your favourite Nicolas Cage movie? Answer us via the socials, and we are across all of them. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Mastodon, Instagram, or you can reply to the questions of the week via Spotify. I always pop the questions in there. Who'd have thought that Spotify would add in like a way to interact? Marvellous. That's what the future's all about. Interaction. So let us know and we will read them out next week. Your favourite Nicolas Cage performance. And talking of shows, what have we got for you on this week's show? So as we said, we have got reviews aplenty and we will both be talking about Renfield. Andy has also seen Chupa, which landed on Netflix recently, and The Sun which landed on Amazon this past week. We've got a deep dive this week into... Greystoke, The Legend of Tarzan. Starring Christopher Lambert and directed by Hugh Hudson. But before any of that, we've got 
news and we've got the box office. So astoundingly, Andy, it looks like Super Mario Brothers has blown all the competition out of the water. Mm. Yes, it's uh, it's holding over for a solid week on week, meaning that the new entries this week haven't really had much of a look in. So into its second week, and it's a Super Mario Brothers still at the top spot in the charts worldwide. Over in the US, it cracked another 92 million this weekend. New entry, The Pope's Exorcist, opened in second place with 9 million. John Wick Chapter 4 in third place with 8 million. Other new entry, which we'll be talking about later in the show, Renfield, opened with 8 million in fourth place. And Ben Affleck's Err manages to hold into fifth place with 7.8 million. Here in the UK, Super Mario Brothers again, top of the charts. It took another 7.5 million this weekend. It's taken a total of 35 million in the UK alone over the Easter holidays. Dungeons and Dragons Honor Amongst Thieves on its third week, holding to second place, taking another 1.17 million. John Wick Chapter 4 in third place with 823,000. Err in fourth place with 723,000. And Renfield just creeping into the top five with 680,000. Super Mario worldwide to date has already passed 692 million. It's well on target to fly past the billion by the end of its run, showing that video game movies maybe do have a future on the big screen. No one saw that coming, did they, with, with Super Mario, to be one of the biggest animated films of all time. Now, you really enjoyed it for all those reasons. Yeah. Do you think it's it's uh, because it, it stays true to the game? Is it because uh, we've not had a big, strong family film for a long time. Why, why do you think it's doing so well? Lack of competition for that family kind of audience is definitely a thing. But it's like I've said about Mario, is it's such a recognisable character for multiple generations. My generation is the one that, you know, Mario first became a thing with. Way back, you know, Donkey Kong was my favourite arcade game to throw loads of money into. And that was the introduction of the character. And people like me have grown with Mario. I think with this, it looks like Mario. Yeah. The D Nintendo are very protective about their product, especially after that awful Bob Hoskins uh, film from the 90s. So everything in this Mario animation looks like it's being curated by Nintendo themselves. And so it fits the game's look, image, and style. And yes, whilst I acknowledge in my review that despite me liking it, general audiences might be put off when they watch it because it's just a, a mishmash of random scenes with no ongoing thread that didn't stop people just jumping onto it because everyone even if you're not a fan of the games recognizes mario yeah and so you've got you've got the older jet we've seen a lot of it at the cinema we've we've got a lot of people of like 30 to 50 years old coming in to see it as groups of like mates oh can't wait and they're loving it because they grew up with it and then you've got kids who want to see it because it just looks like a fun animation and their parents are getting dragged along. I'm not convinced that a second film will do as strongly as this because I think that some of the audience will have been alienated by it being a bit of a mess. But the hardcore audience have made it a huge success and the hardcore audience will return for any spin-offs. It bodes well for fans of Nintendo because now everyone's speculating there's going to be a sequel to this, obviously. But what other Nintendo properties will they start tapping into? And the big demand is for Legend of Zelda to get a big screen out of, which is the other Nintendo beloved property. We also know that when a film does very, very well, uh, and, and this kind of film 
has got repeat performances, hasn't it? So, so people have seen it the once, and, and they're going to go back and watch it another time. Yeah, we've seen, we've seen a few, few of our regulars coming back to see it again, and she's like, "Yeah, you really enjoyed it then." So, this is a film that has been a huge success. But it's more impressive that it didn't just have that huge success for the opening weekend because everything at the moment is kind of like having a huge drop of like 60% or more. Whereas this, I, th- I think it was less, it was around about 40% drop off in the US, wow. which is a really, really strong drop off in this day and age. Uh, the last time that we saw an animated film wasn't that long ago doing similar kind of like drop offs and like sustained business was the Puss in Boots The Last Wish, yeah. which again topped down, tapped into a bit of nostalgia factory with a franchise that was 20 years old the Shrek franchise, but giving it a polish for a new new audience. So you get the multiple Ainge Rangers, and this is possibly this is possibly where we're going to see a lot of animations go into in future, tapping into something that has that older age age range to target to, as well as the young kids. Also, what we we were talking about uh, yesterday is the fact that we've got Guardians of the Galaxy uh, coming out in a couple of weeks, and whether yes. that's going to have the opening big big weekend, which we expect it to, or and then I think this is a test for the whole superhero genre, not just Marvel, mm. whether it's going to have staying power. And um, this could be a, a big make or break it for the entire superhero range, let alone just uh, yep. Marvel and DC. We've said multiple times that whilst people like us know the difference between Marvel and DC characters, your general audience don't necessarily know which one's which. And when a lot of the product comes out that looks very generic, I mean, I'm looking forward to Blue Beetle. But let's be honest, that trailer just looks like a generic comic book film. And I don't think it's going to sell it to your general audience. And they won't distinguish that that's DC or Marvel. They'll just see it as it's just another one of those junk superhero films. And that's the problem that we've got. There's an oversaturation in the market of superhero films. And Sony aren't helping it by giving us dross, absolute dross um, with the Venomverse. But the the true test, we've said it a couple of times, the true test this year are whether Guardians of the Galaxy does business and whether The Flash does business. Now, talking of the Sony-verse, and and I know you're going to be, uh, I know you're going to be particularly gutted by this, it's not looking as though the El Muerto film is moving forward. Now, I know you're shocked, uh, and I know you're probably deeply, deeply upset, and uh, there'll be counselling available at the end of this, Andy, don't worry. But uh, (laughs) Bad Bunny's movie, the first Hispanic supervillain that no one ever remembered, because they only made one appearance. (laughs) It's looking like it's, uh, it's not going anywhere. Yep, this was supposed to be out early next year, but it's now apparently stalled. It's not been cancelled. It's just stalled. Bad Bunny himself was asked um, how is it going with it and gave a very blank expression back to the interviewers. Was, was that his acting? Uh, well, yeah, that's pretty much his acting. I can't say I'm that disappointed. It still means that we are still getting the Craven the Hunter movie later this year and the Madam Web one in February next year, just in time for Valentine's Day. If you want to break up a relationship <laughs> next year, you can do it on Valentine's Day by treating them to Madam Web. <laughs> you never know. I, I've got more interest in Madam Web than I have in, in Craven, I must be honest. I, I would do, but seeing how Sony have handled all of these live action ones. Oh, yeah, yeah. It I just mean, doesn't it's... fill me with any faith. Sticking with Marvel and more the better side of Marvel. Uh, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings director Destin Daniel Cretton has confirmed that production on Wonder Man series has begun. He's took to Instagram to share behind-the-scenes photo with himself in front of the famous Hollywood sign in Los Angeles and revealed that Brett Power is serving as cinematographer for the production. Looking forward to Wonder Man. I mean, Yaha Abdul-Mateen II leading the series, great actor. Um, Ben Kingsley's going to be back as uh, Trevor Slattery, who (laughs) was an absolute joy in Shang-Chi. It was great how like everyone's opinion of Trevor Slattery changed because I I thoroughly loved 
Iron Man 3. Yes, me too, me too. It, it just had that kind of vibe to it. And we both, despite the fact that we wanted like a, an actual proper Mandarin villain, we quite loved the little rug pull that they did with Trevor Slattery. But the general population went, oh, don't like that, don't like that. But then when Shang-Chi came out, everyone suddenly fell in love with Trevor Slattery and got him as a character. And people have retroactively gone back to Iron Man 3 and gone, actually, I kind of get it now. So I want to see more of him. I love how Ben, ben Kingsley's clearly having a field day in that role. Let's look forward to this series. The Marvel's teaser trailer also landed this past week. Yeah, it looks interesting. I, I didn't blow me away. And by teaser trailer, it was two minutes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it didn't blow me away. I need to go back and look at it again. I think the one thing that it showed is how much of an absolute star Eamon Valarius. Yeah. She steals every moment in that trailer as uh, Ms. Marvel, Kamala Khan. She's just got such energy on screen. And that's the main reason. I mean, I, I enjoyed Captain Marvel. I didn't dislike the Captain Marvel film. I, th I think that Brie Larson's a great bit of casting. I'd love to see where they go with her. But I am more in for Ms. Marvel on the Marvels than with anyone else because I adore that character. Um, also, Deadpool 3. We've now got confirmation that Marina Baccarin and Stefan Kapsik will be back as Vanessa and Colossus, which basically means that the whole team is now reassembled. And while everything went quiet on the Blade front, it seems to be making some amount of traction. So we know it uh, lost its director and went back to a page one rewrite. So uh, a rumor going around, some casting news is that your beloved Mia Goth may be joining yes. this movie with the possibility and nothing, has, I, as far as I know at this stage, has, has been mentioned that she might be playing the character of Lilith. That would make sense. I could see that, but there's no confirmation at the moment what role she would be playing. Uh, the story details on the new take are completely unknown as well, ever since uh, it was Basem Tarek, who was the original director who left the project. Jan Demange, who gave us 71, came on board in November last year, bringing along Emmy-nominated scribe Michael Starbury, who wrote When They See Us for the new script. So it, apparently Marichal Ali was personally involved in selecting the new writer with the intent to make the film dark and gritty in tone. So we'll find out more about this, no doubt in the coming months, because it, now it's back on track. Now things are starting to ramp up. Hopefully, hopefully we'll finally see Blade on the screen. It's over to DC. Okay, oh, let's go over. Let's cause even more confusion for the general audience out there who don't know the difference between Marvel and DC by actually jumping straight into DC at the back of Marvel. We spoke about it last week with the casting of Frank Grillo in an unnamed role in an unnamed show. And we speculated that he was going to be Rick Flagg Sr. We called it. In Creature Commandos. And James Gunn has confirmed it all this week. Yes, Creature Commandos animation is going into production. And the full cast lineup is Frank Grillo as Rick Flagg Sr., Zoe Chow as Nina Mazarski, Alan Tudyuk, I love Alan Tudyuk, as Dr. Phosphorus, David Harbour as Eric Frankenstein, great casting, Indira Varma as The Bride, Sean Gunn obviously reprising his role as Weasel, but also as Robot, and Maria Bakalova as the new character, Princess Ilana Rostovic. Viola Davis and Steve Agee will be reprising their Peacemaker and Suicide Squad roles. And Gunn has written all the episodes, says he's directing the primary actor's initial recordings to get the voices right. But he is not going to be the director for the show itself. So there's been a little bit of, is it outrage? Can we use the word outrage? From a bit of kickback, a bit it? of kickback by animated voice artists about the casting. Yeah. Now, Gunn was honest and upfront when he announced what's going to be happening with the DC projects going forwards. And he said at that point in time that anyone cast for the animated shows will be cast 
with the intention that if they go live action with any of these characters, that that would be the person playing the role. So these are being cast for a live action one, but they're only providing the voice. I think the problem, I think the kickbacks come not necessarily as an attack on what DC are doing, but it's about how the industry as a whole is treating voiceover artists. Because when, you know, the biggest film of the of the moment, which we've just been talking about in the box office roundup, Mario, did it really need Chris Pratt voicing the lead role? Could they not have got a solid voice actor? Because a lot of the controversy around the making of that film was Chris Pratt's not going to sound anything like Mario. What's he going to do with the accent, etc.? Whereas I don't think you would have got that controversy had there actually just been a normal voice actor added. And it's the same with every animated movie. I love the Puss in Boots um, Last Wish. Antonio Banderas isn't really a voice actor, though, is he? And neither Salma Hayek. And it's how the industry as a whole is now moving towards getting big names rather than casting for the voices. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, James Gunn's new DCU template of using actual actors in the roles to be able to split between live action and animation is bearing the brunt of that criticism at the moment. Yeah, Tara Strong, the great Tara Strong, who has mm. voiced everything, has, has, has not been particularly happy with this move forward. Um, she's mentioned it on Twitter. She mentioned it in a quite a diplomatic way, but it, it clearly a lot of voice artists aren't particularly pleased. If you think to uh, The Last of Us, well, mm. they did manage to include a lot of the actors who'd been in the game and also uh, with one of the actors actually replaying her role from the game. Yeah, it is a it is a time of worry for particularly voice actors in the industry at the moment to see that animated movies are being sold on the back of the big names attached to them because it's kind of sidelining them into support characters. And even with the Mario movie, the support cast are all big names. Yeah, there's there's no one who's just a general voice worker in there. You've got Jack Black as Bowser. You've got Seth Rogen in there. Everyone is a big star. So it, it's kind of the, like I say, James Gunn's DC is basically taking the bullets on behalf of the whole industry at the moment. And I don't really think that's fair because at least he was open and honest about what his decisions were from day one. Uh, sticking around in Warner's world. So we talked about this upcoming reboot of Harry Potter as a TV series. So not a lot to mention about it at this stage. There's no casting, but it is said to be eyeing a far more diverse cast than the original movie franchise. Yeah. Over at Pixar, it's been announced that Lightyear, which was supposed to be a huge movie, the Toy Story spin-off, mostly to positive reviews, let's be honest, but underperformed mm. incredibly at the box office. It's now been revealed that the Pixar movie lost Disney upwards of $100 million. Who was that marketing for that film aimed at? Who came up with that marketing? Because everyone was completely confused as to what it was going yeah. to be. So that by the time it came out, it was like, no one could be bothered because no one knew whether it was for them. And this has been a problem with Disney and their animations marketing in general. Look at um, Strange World. The marketing was dreadful on it and it suffered as a result. So I think someone needs to uh, get a new marketing team. Hopefully under Iger's new reign, there'll be a lot more folks on it. Lightyear just told me, uh, well, this is Buzz Lightyear, but not that Buzz Lightyear. Mm. It's a different Buzz Lightyear, but uh, don't worry. It's it's something to do with Lightyear, but it's not to do with the Toy Story franchise. And it just confused and muddied the waters. The very first Lightyear trailer was a tease, and it worked better yeah. than the later trailers that tried to overcomplicate it. Keep it back to just get people in, interested in the concept, because the best Pixar films are all the ones that you went in not exactly knowing what to expect. Wally. The trailering for that didn't give you any clue as to where that was going. Up was one that the trailering for that, it didn't really tell you anything. 
But those films were beautiful as results yeah. because you didn't have anything spoiled. You didn't feel you had seen it all and you weren't confused. You just knew that it looked appealing and it looked like it could be intriguing. So yeah, come on, Disney, sort out your marketing team, particularly for your animations, because you don't know what you're doing. MGM and Amazon. Okay, we know that they joined up some years back. Yep, Amazon, it's a year since they finalized the right. final bits of signage on that dotted line with Amazon paying 8.5 billion for MGM. It's been in the pipeline for a few years, but it took a few years worth of legal wrangling before they finally signed it. Well, now Amazon have revealed that they're ready to move forwards on the properties that MGM holds. About a dozen initial titles for film and or TV development uh, in the pipeline, with the company reaching out to A-list creative talent to potentially enlist, along with steering some of their own talent towards the properties. Each title is going to be getting a different approach. Some are getting new films, some are TV series, and the biggest will be getting both. The three biggest, and one of these got me really excited. One of them got me going, yeah, okay. And the other one made me go, Meh, not for me, but I can see the reason. Go on. Stargate. Oh, okay. I'm there for Stargate. Uh, Robocop. Yeah. yeah. I can see the potential. I'll be there for it. I want them to do good with it. Legally Blonde. Not really for yeah. me. I did enjoy the yeah. films. Not my cup of tea, but there's a huge market for it. All of them will be getting both film and TV treatment. The new Stargate movie will come before the TV series. The new Robocop will start as a TV series before it does a movie. And Legally Blonde will do both of them side by side. It's not clear if the last one of them, Legally Blonde, is getting a full reboot or is it going to be the long-awaited third entry in the film franchise. There's also active development underway on new TV shows based on fame, Barbershop, Magnificent Seven, and films based on The Pink Panther, Poltergeist, The Thomas Crown Affair. Uh, but normally, like, you know, Thomas Crown Affair, I'd be going, do we need another one? But given the fact that the remake itself that we've already had with Pierce Brosnan was so good, I'd be happy to see them tackle it again if they can manage to deliver on that again. So Amazon finally got the property names that can make them some money. And finally, it gives us something to look forward to with new Stargate. I've been wanting <laughs> this dream to happen for ages. I loved Stargate. Um, you've been a massive fan of uh, Radio Silence, aka Matt Bettinelli, Olfin, and Tyler Gillett. Anyway, they've signed on to helm a mysterious monster movie for Universal Pictures and the project has now found its leads. So according to the trades, uh, Melissa Barrera, uh, the new screen movies and In the Heights is set to reteam with the duo on an untitled film. We know that Universal is very interested in trying to relaunch all of its classic monster properties and they, uh, they ditched the mummy after well, after it was just really terrible. So the whole Dark Universe idea uh, was quickly canned, but we did get The Invisible Man after that. But this has been described as a unique take on a legendary monster lore and will represent a fresh and new direction to celebrate one of these classic characters. We're gonna be talking about Renfield later. We know that the last voyage of the Demeter, uh, which there was a great trailer that landed this week. Great trailer. So we know that uh, Universal looking to develop the likes of Frankenstein, the Wolfman, and the creature from the Black Lagoon. So I don't know about you, but I'm interested to find out even more. I've got a lot of love for these Universal characters. And, and to some extent, yeah. they were the first shared universe way, way back in the 30s and 40s. I speculate that this is the rumored Dracula's daughter project. Ooh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That could, could be one. Which uh, I believe the concept was that, that in a modern day setting, a group of kidnappers abduct a group of young people of which one of them is Dracula's daughter and starts taking them out from within the hostage situation. If it's that one, that sounds right up Gillett and Alpin's alley completely. 
you know I'm there for anything that Radio Silence do. They've clearly got a handle on horror in a way that the show respects the material yeah. that they're adapting whilst also giving it their own unique touch. So, yeah, I'm there. I'm well and truly there. Ballerina, the John Wick oh, yeah, has now got a release date. Oh, good. June the 7th, 2024 Ooh, is the date to mark your diary. Can I wait that long? For those who don't know what this is, this is the Anna Diarmas starring one where she plays an assassin trained in the traditions of the Ruska Roma using her killer skills to get revenge when the hitmen kill her family. It's it's what you expect from the John Wick universe, and it's an extension of the John Wick world setting. Uh, there will be pop-ups from various co-star reg- regulars, including the late Lance Reddick, who had his scenes already shot ready for the film. Let's be honest, there's going to be more from the John Wick universe going forward. Donnie Yen, at the moment, has been speaking about how he'd like to get a spin-off for his blind hitman character Kane. He said he'd love to step back into that role again, although he did say it's unclear whether it's going to happen, but there's always talks in Hollywood. And I think we'd all be down for a, a bit more Kane action. Yeah. And also on the subject of the John Wick universe, have you seen the trailer that landed for The Continental? No, week? I didn't. No, no. Uh, there's a trailer out there. It doesn't tell you much, doesn't do much. It just teases. Okay. The aspect. I'll be there for that. That three-part series is coming soon, so we'll definitely be there for that. Also on the on the role of trailers, uh, the Penguin had its first teaser trailer this week. I as missed well. that as well. Oh, well, I've had a busy week, so to say that it looks a perfect continuation of Matt Reeves as the Batman would be an understatement. It literally picks up right from the end of that film. The worry when they said they were going to do a Penguin film is like, oh, they're going to try and make him an anti-hero or something. Nope, they're not. They're going to be making him a nasty, nasty piece of work. And I can't wait. It's basically going to be the, it'll basically be the Batman 1.5. Okay. Uh, staying in the world of streaming, uh, it was always going to happen. Netflix wanted to do an American remake of the hugely popular Squid Game, and they are eyeing Fight Club director David Fincher to take the helm. And of course, Fincher's had a long relationship with Netflix. He was basically there at the get-go with House of Cards, the stunning and as yet unfinished Mindhunter, and of course, Love and Robots. I've not seen Squid Games. No, me neither. It, 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 I just wasn't drawn to it. I don't know why. I will check it out. And I'm not averse to the being... I know that there's a load of negative chatter out there saying, why should they remake it, blah, blah, blah. Sometimes you can adapt things well for a Western audience. And uh, Fincher has done it once before and actually delivered something that I think was personally better than the previous adaptation. Go with the dragon tattoo. Yeah, yeah, I've got a lot of love for that. I think it's I think it's a superior film for a lot, a lot of reasons. Let's not write it off and let's wait to see what ends up getting delivered because it might mean, like I always say, you might have two things you can love of the same material. Dungeons and Dragons. Now, we know that the film's dropped off significantly at the box office and it's kind of struggling a bit, but that hasn't stopped them from still pushing ahead with the TV series plans that we revealed a few months ago. Announced in January, the eight-episode project has scored a straight-to-series order with Red Notice filmmaker Rawson Marshall Thurber penning the pilot script and set to direct the first episode. Drew Cravello has been hired to serve as showrunner on the whole show and executive producer. He's helped develop X-Men First Class and Deadpool while at 20th Century Fox and recently co-created Apple's limited series, We Crushed. All the Dungeons & Dragons things are still going ahead. Despite the fact it's dropped off, the critical response that it had and the positivity that it generated, they're expecting it to do decent enough on home release to justify them continuing with the franchise and building the franchise. So don't feel that because the film hasn't succeeded that greatly that we're never going to see that cast line up again. Over on HBO, or should we say Max, yeah, they have, haven't they? I noticed that it's not going to make that much of a difference. No. I mean, why would you drop the HBO, which is the prestigious <laughs> yeah, which part is the bit that you recognise. 
Uh, well, they've officially ordered another Game of Thrones prequel series called A Knight of the Seven Kingdoms, The Hedge Knight. The title is based on George R. R. Martin's popular trio of gunk and egg novel novellas. Set a century before the events of Game of Thrones, two unlikely heroes wandered Westeros. One's young and naive, but courageous. And the other one is his diminutive squire called Egg, who's also known as Egon V Tar Targaryen. After how successfully received, not only critically, but also viewership, House of Dragon was received. It was a no-brainer that they were going to start greenlighting even more spin-offs and prequels. Whether it'll end up flooding the market too much remains to be seen. But at this point in time, I'm still interested. Talking of flooding the market, we know that there's a Stranger Things stage play uh, ready to go. But also, Netflix has announced it's going to produce an animated spin-off, uh, which is currently in the works. And it's, it's just proving to Netflix it's hard to let a good series go. Last round off the news with um, some quick bullet points casting users so sam rockwell is reportedly in talks to starring gore verbinski's next film we have no idea what the project is or what the role entails but it will mark verbinski's first film since 2016's a cure for wellness which wasn't very well received former prison break and the menu star paul adelstein has confirmed that he's joined an unknown marvel cinematic universe project with a project currently filming in Atlanta. It's not known which project he's on. The most likely option is going to be Captain America New World Order, but it could also be Agatha Cover of Chaos or even Blade that we know something might be happening with. Sebastian Stan and Maria Bakalova are both attached to star in an untitled spy comedy, which is in early, early development of Paramount Pictures, with Jenny Bix, who did Welcome to Flatch, writing the script. Billy Porter is going to portray author and civil rights activist James Baldwin in an up upcoming untitled biopic adapted from the 1994 book James Baldwin, a biography. And finally, Kristen Stewart, Michael Angarano, Michael Serra, and Maya Erskine have joined the road trip comedy Sacramento with Angarero directing the feature due to shoot this spring. Angarero and Chris Smith co-wrote the script together. And finally, in Star Wars world, Star Wars Visions Volume 2 trailer reveals some dazzling new animation styles. And what stood out for me is the Aardman version of the racing pilot short, which brings back the character of Wedge Antilles. And that's it for this week's The News. You're listening to The Film File, your favourite film geek podcast. And if you're not a subscriber, Andy, why aren't they a subscriber? What, what are we doing wrong? Is it us? Are, are, we, are we just trying too hard? I, I don't get it. Why aren't they subscribing? I can only assume that these people, their fingers and thumbs have fallen off uh, as soon as they started to listen to the podcast. They were so excited by what they listened to because they can't press the buttons to click subscribe. So if that's happened to you and that's the reason why you've not subscribed, ask a friend to help. Use your nose. Yeah, use your nose. Whatever it takes, just if you're enjoying this show, you don't want to miss out on the next show. You want to know when it lands. And the easiest way to do that is on whatever podcast service you use, be it Spotify, iTunes, Google, even Audible, which we've uh, recently been listed on. You can just click on the subscribe. You can leave a like. You can leave a five-star review. I'll let, I'll let you off with a four-star. Anything less than that, I'll be round at your house. Just interact with us. Just show us that you love because a bit of love goes a long way you can find us on all of the socials so there's absolutely no reason in the world for you not to keep in touch drop us a line tell us films that you love that we should be deep diving ask us questions who starred in that film what was the name of that fella who was went on to do other things even from that we can figure it out so get in touch with us across all of the socials and now it's time for this week's deep dive <laughs> Dive, dive, dive. Directed by Hugh Hudson, 
starring Christopher Lambert. This week's deep dive is Greystoke, The Legend of Tarzan, Lord of the Apes, and it came out in 1984. In 1886, following a shipwreck off the west coast of Africa, an infant child became part of a family of apes. As he grew, he learned the laws of the jungle and eventually claimed the title Lord of the Apes. You have another family when you have never seen. My son has returned from Africa. He is the Earl of Greystoke. He is what the jungle has made him. Now, Hugh Hudson, the director of Academy Award winner Chariots of Fire, brings the authentic Tarzan legend to the screen. Greystoke, the legend of Tarzan, Lord of the Apes. Based on the Edgar Rice Burroughs novel, Tarzan of the Apes, which came out in 1912, Christopher Lambert stars as Tarzan, though the name Tarzan is never used in any of the film's dialogue. It featured the first on-screen appearance of Andy McDowell as Jane. The cast also includes Ralph Richardson in his final role, James Fox, Cheryl Campbell, Ian Charlson, and the very great Ian Holm. This was kind of in the shadow of Superman the movie, in which the core character is treated with respectability and verisimilitude. This is the most accurate of all of the Tarzan films. And, to be perfectly honest, it's my favourite Tarzan film. It gets the tone completely right. There's no point in this film that you don't believe that the Earl of Greystoke, uh, John Clayton, hasn't lived his life in the jungle. There's no point in this film where we send up the character. We don't rely on the Johnny Weissmuller Tarzan cry for a start. This takes it very, very seriously. I think a lot of people were put off by how seriously this took the legend, but it does do exactly that. It makes the character of Tarzan become legendary. Part jungle movie, part survivalist movie, and part Victorian adventure. This film is great. I have so much love to it. Came out and I saw it more than once within in its uh, initial run. And I go back to it and I still love it. That's how great this film is. Can't agree more. Being a child who was born in the 70s, uh, this is another one of those things. And we spoke about these on the show before. That during the summer holidays, there were certain things that were always on TV. And there was always something Tarzan related. Usually BBC would have like some of the movies on and ITV would have one of the Tarzan animated series. And so I grew up knowing this Tarzan character in one way, shape or form, be it the um, Wise Muller films, the, the later ones, uh, Lex Barker and Gordon Scott. Yeah, Lex Barker, Gordon Scott. I mean, you had the TV series with Ron Ely. Yeah. There's been so many interpretations of of tarzan but nothing that's ever portrayed the the proper origin uh, of, of the character and the way that that burroughs uh, intended it to be yep. played one of the first books that i rented out when i first joined the junior library at age of eight was tarzan of the apes because i'd seen so many representations of tarzan and loved it but what i read in the book was felt completely different to what i'd already seen so when this film was coming out and it was like being pitched as like the definitive adaptation of the book, the young 11 year old in me was quite excited. I wanted to see this. I, unfortunately, I don't think my mum wanted to see it. So uh, we had to wait until the home release. And when we got it out on VHS and I sat down and watched it, I absolutely fell in love with it. I loved the fact that the, so, yeah, the interaction with the apes at the beginning all feels so real. And at a young age, I was I was impressed with what I thought were real apes 
that they managed to train and act alongside uh, this this actor who I didn't have any idea who he was. It's only as I got older that I started to realise, no, that was just men in costumes, but damn, they were good. And it's a film that I went back to a few years later when I was in my late teens thinking, well, was it as good as I remembered when I was 11? And yes, it was. And it's one that I went back to regularly after that up until about two decades ago when for some reason I stopped going back to it. So this past week was my first time watching it in at least two decades. And boy, it's so good. That first first half of it, basically, which there's hardly any dialogue in that first half, because a lot of it, all it is, is grunts and guttural noises and sounds as uh, the young Lord Greystoke is uh, being raised by apes. And it's got a solid, solid emotional core to it as well. The reason why he's adopted by the apes is his ape mother had lost her own child and was carrying around the corpse of her dead baby until she saw him and then drops a a dead baby's corpse and takes that. And it's that following that first half of the film's journey as he's growing alongside apes, but not accepted by all the apes, but slowly builds to become the Lord of the apes. He, he, He challenges to be in charge of them. And then the second half of the film shifts completely after Ian Holmes come into it to take it for a fish out of water aspect with him going back to Scotland and trying to become a man inside this hierarchy world of aristocracy and it's such a great balance of the two different contrasts and it plays so well from all the cast all the supporting cast but lambert himself who is absolutely mesmerizing throughout this was this was lambert's big screen breakthrough it was a bit like the search for christopher reeve by centering on a a complete unknown who wasn't bringing any anything from their career previous to to the role starting fresh with this hugh hudson himself wanted to cast unknowns for both tarzan and jane and as as he saw them as being complete innocence he didn't want his character of tarzan to be muscle bound like uh, some of the previous incarnations looking at people like johnny weissmuller he wanted him to be light life where every muscle is used now, some of the people that he looked at before lambert were julian sands and vigo mortensen but he said when it came down to Lambert, he just felt that he was the right person. He has this strange quality about him somehow because he has a, a myopic. So when he took off his glasses, mm. he couldn't really see properly. So when we look through, you kind of he kind of has this unique look where he looks into the distance. Uh, Andy McDowell made her film debut as Jane. She'd been a, a, a fashion model before. And you can see that the camera loves her. And she just had this persona of being innocent. Uh, however, she was redubbed by Glenn Close because uh, it didn't feel as though she she was able to deliver depth with her dialogue. It's, it's a southern drawl that didn't quite work that meant that they had to get the difference dubbing over. I mean, the stars of this film, along with Lambert, is Rick Baker's creature workshop and the design of the apes. It's they're absolutely stunning. Rick Baker, as you know, is the makeup guy and he's always had a fascination for apes and he had the opportunity to do something absolutely unique by creating a family create characters with the apes in the way that that had previously any of the other tarzan films had never been able to do yeah what rick baker did with really great costume design and with the actors gymnasts and circus performers that exercised for up to eight hours each day to portray these apes is akin to what Andy Serkis is doing at this point in time with his CGI stop motion capture workshops, that it was so beautifully detailed and thoroughly researched that, like I said, at the age of 11, I thought that they were real apes. And even when you watch it now, it's hard to not think of them 
as real apes because all of their mannerisms, all of their looks, all of their sounds, even just twitches of eyes, everything feels genuine. If you watched a wildlife documentary and then watched this afterwards, you would see how perfectly represented the ape culture was within the film. Uh, yes, obviously it's fantastical because no way would apes be able to raise a boy in the wild in such a way that he then decides that he needs to wear a loincloth when he's an older man. Don't know where that came from. But I, this is a film that has a runtime of two hours 20 which had been cut back from a three-hour cut. The director got to two hours 40, and he would have preferred that version, but they told him to strip it back further and further. And there's no version of that longer cut that exists, but I would happily sit and watch it. But when it came to the awards that it got nominated for, there's one in particular which I have some amusement, and that's the fact that screenwriter Robert Town was so unhappy with the rewrites that were made to his first draft by director Hugh Hudson that he asked for his name to be removed, and he replaced it with the name of his sheepdog, P.H. Vazek, which meant when it got an Oscar nomination, a dog was nominated for the award for Best Writer. <laughs> Robert Town, of course, gave us Chinatown, and this was a, a pet project. He joined the project uh, in 1974, and he saw his version of Tarzan uh, as a serious period action adventure, true to the character of, of Burroughs' books, uh, and done in terms of, of more of a contemporary take. He wanted it to be a very heavy story, very sensual, basically about Tarzan and his foster mother. And there were numerous attempts to get the film made under the working title of Lord Greystoke. In October 1977, Town was attached as director, but he made his directorial debut on another project instead, something else he'd written, Personal Best. So he intended to hand the work over to somebody else, and he landed in the lap of Hugh Hudson. Hugh Hudson had made his name on his debut feature, Chariots of Fire, which had been a huge box office hit and a surprise. And he thought that Town's script was brilliant. But he also felt it was only half finished and overlong. But all of the jungle stuff was there and it was a, a fascinating story. He revived the script with Michael Austin to the point where, as Andy said, Town became unhappy with the final shooting script. But looking back on it, it's still a fantastic take on Tarzan, one that we've not seen before. Mm. One of the only few times that we've seen the origin story of, of Tarzan in the way that Burroughs intended it. I think the other time was was the Disney version that came out uh, a couple yeah. of years ago. The film grossed 45.9 million upon its release, making it the 15th most popular film uh, at the box office in 1984. So it, it did pretty good. It didn't set the world on fire. And I think partly it was because it went for such a, a serious and sober tone mm. to what everyone's kind of, who's kind of grown up with Tarzan wanted a, a romping muscle man adventure. And, and this isn't that. This is something that's, that's half felt. Yes, the second half of the film yeah. departs radically from Burroughs' original story. And yet I think it's the, the second part of the film where the film has has real heart. I think I'll agree with you there. Like, like I said earlier, the second half of it is the fish out of water aspect of him trying to trying to regain the human part of himself in the aristocracy. And I think that that second half is also like a, the reason why he doesn't fit into the real world again is because he's taken from the primitive to the other side, complete opposite end. And it, it shines a light on the hypocrisy of the elite within society. I, I love this film from start to finish. Yeah, me too. And I'm, I'm looking forward to revisiting it again now that I've recently rediscovered it. It launched Christopher Lambert into the forefront. And, you know, maybe if this hadn't been made, he wouldn't be in one of my all-time favourite films of all time. Highlander, which is when I started to recognise him. And that's the reason why I went back and revisited this a few years after it had come out. 
is because I'd seen Highlander and suddenly went, that was that guy from Tarzan and wanted to watch Tarzan again. The whole film is well worth checking out. If you've never seen it, I do thoroughly recommend tracking down a copy and getting it watched because whilst it's not the definitive, it was pitched as the definitive version. It's not definitive, but on an emotional core level and the essence of it, it's the closest that we've ever got. We have had other films that have tried to do the realistic approach since, uh, including the most recent one being 2016's Alexander Skarsgård starring Legend of Tarzan. But I don't think any of them have quite nailed it as well as this one has. Yeah, I've got to agree. I mean, I was a, a fan, and they are dated, uh, the Burroughs books, but I was I still have a, a fond take on them. And I think this is about as close as we've got to telling a correct realisation of the Tarzan story. I still think there's room for uh, something else. I still think that combination of this and uh, The Legend of Tarzan could work really well. We've seen it done with Batman on so many times, it doesn't matter yeah. who plays the character as long as they play them with integrity. And that's certainly what Christopher Lambert does in this. He brings an integrity, as does Hugh Hudson, to this film. It's not always successful in the second half. It does meander a little bit, but I'm not taking anything away from that. I have so much love for this film. Andy, where can we find it if we want to watch Greystoke, The Legend of Tarzan? It's available to rent from all your favourite streaming services, uh, be it Amazon, Google Play, Apple TV, wherever. Uh, you can see it in standard definition or HD. I do recommend the HD because the cinematography in this is beautiful. There, you can get the DVD out there. You'll, you, there's no Blu-ray to be able to find without having to chalk up a huge cost at this point in time. But no doubt at some point it's going to get reissued. It gets a regular reissue, particularly on the US market, in archive collections from Warner Brothers. I wouldn't be surprised if we're going to get next year, in particular, an anniversary re-release. We'll be back next week with another deep dive. And now it's time for this week's reviews. Andy's going to be talking about... Chopper and the Sun. And we're both going to be talking about Renfield. And let's start with Chopper. What is it? Chupacabras. Well, what about we call him Chupa? You know Chupa means sucker, right? Chupa. He'll be our little secret. Don't worry. I'm going to take care of you. There are some bad people out there who want to take advantage of these creatures. I know you saw it. We have to get him out of here. Let's go. We got to go. Whoa, whoa. Stop. Come on, come on, come on. Are you sure you know how to drive? Recently landing on Netflix, Chopper sees a shy 13-year-old named Alex, played by Evan Witten, fly to Mexico to spend time with his extended family. His grandfather, Shava, played by Demian Bichir, used to be a famous Lucha Libre champion, and he lives on an isolated farm with Alex's cousins, Nemo, played by Nicholas Verdugo, and Luna, played by Ashley Ciara. Struggling to fit into this world, Alex stumbles on a mythical creature, a chupacabra cub, sheltering in his grandfather's shed. However, there's a scientist, Richard Quinn, played by Christian Slater, seeking the creature, and Alex must help the cub find his way back to his family, whilst all the while trying to connect with his own. The concept is promising on paper, which is what drew me to the film, but the end result feels like a flat, unengaging, poor man's E.T., and dare I say it, Mac and me. The usually great Bachia delivers a role that feels empty and underdeveloped, and the child actors around him, whilst not the worst I've seen, are unconvincing and lack any range to make you connect on any level with them. Every cliche of the troubled boy finds creature to connect with subgenre is milked dry 
making the whole thing feel woefully over-familiar. As for Slater, he's clearly phoning in a role that demands very little of him and fails to feel like he's any threat at any turn of the tale. There are a few nice touches. The look at Mexican culture is somewhat refreshing, especially in an age when the only time that US films seem to cross the border is to show gangs and drug empires. The CGI isn't perfect, but the design of the trooper compensates for the low quality by being so charmingly cute that you're willing to overlook some of the dodgier aspects of its integration into scenes. Overall, this is a film aimed at a younger audience. It will find some sweetness and cute coming of age aspects to connect with and some minor thrills throughout, whilst older viewers will just feel that they've seen it all done before so much better and they'll be glad when the relatively short 95 minutes runs dry. So your second film is The Son by the same people who brought you The Father, which I remember it broke you. Is this as good as The Father? Nicholas has come to live with me and he's a little fragile. Is that why you came to see me? You're blaming me for what happened. He's different from the others. What makes you say that? The look in his eye is disturbing. Failure. If I'm like this, it's your fault. Haven't I always done everything for you? I have the right to reinvent my life! It is my life! Everything okay at home? Yeah, everything's fine. The Sun. Directed and co-written by Florian Zeller, and adapted from Zeller's own stage play from 2018, I had good hopes for this, having previously been floored by Zeller's The Father. Sadly, I found myself disappointed and underwhelmed by this offering, despite the story themes once more tapping into some personal aspects that I could relate to. The story sees Peter, played by Hugh Jackman, who's got a hectic life, which then gets further complicated when his ex-wife Kate, played by Laura Dern, tells him that their teenage son Nicholas, played by Zen McGrath, has dropped out of school. Nicholas goes to stay with Peter and shows signs of depression and self-harm. Having not really got to know his son growing up, Peter strives to now be a better father than his own one, played briefly by Anthony Hopkins as a cruel and cold-hearted presence. And he tries to bond with his struggling son. With the look at teenage depression, self-harm, suicidal tendencies, and the impact it has on those around them, this is a story basis that once more hits quite close to home. Unfortunately, Whilst it's staged similarly to the father, using limited location spaces in adapting the stage play over to the screen, this feels very much like a stage production, and it lacks the connection and the emotional level that the father delivered perfectly. The result is that it comes over, sadly, as a cheap Hallmark Channel film of the week, manipulative rather than authentic. The primary issue here is the casting of Zen McGrath as Nicholas. Whilst the names around him are given their all, Jackman's on magnificent form as Peter, Laura Dern's great as Kate, and even Vanessa Kirby as Peter's second wife, Beth, who gets very little to do but makes every scene matter. McGrath is just woefully flat throughout, and he never feels authentic in delivery at any moment. With his character being the central element of the whole tale, this unfortunately damages the film at the emotional core, and without that working, the rest just appears like melodrama. It's a shame more than anything else that after the hard-hitting and very honestly real The Father, that Zeller followed it with what could have been another strong look at mental health issues, but delivers such an underwhelming and disconnecting entry such as this. And all of it is down to that one very key component, the casting of the central role just not fitting. And we've both seen, which has now become a bit of a thing, Renfield. I am Dracula. Renfield, you will make a very good assistant. I work for Dracula. What? 
You're like the guy that gets the villain's postmates. Let's see. I do other stuff too. Like what? Wash his cape? No, that's dry clean only. I attend to his needs, especially during daylight hours. You okay? No. Renfield. Is it yummy? Yeah. The long-term minion of Count Dracula, Renfield, joins a self-help group for people who find themselves in toxic relationships after being ordered to bring more innocent victims to his master. Renfield attempts to break the spell, step out and find himself. But when your boss is a blood-sucking vampire, played by Nicolas Cage, Renfield finds that pretty hard to do. Also take into account that he falls for New Orleans cop, played by Aquafina, and takes on the local New Orleans mob. So if you've seen the trailer, you know what? That's what you're getting. You've got basically three genres in one. You've got a comedy, you've got a very visceral horror movie, and you've got something else, which is how to look at life and make the most out of your life. Uh, directed by Chris McKay, who brought us uh, the Batman Lego movie, this is a scream. And I think you and I both really enjoyed it. Yes, the trailer sold it exactly how it was. I remember when this was first pitched and we talked about it on the news, it's like, there's going to be a film which is called Renfield. And we both kind of like, eh could have potential but as it got closer to it we saw some of the like buzz around it it was like okay what kind of approach they go jokey clearly and then that trailer just showcased that it's yeah it's jokey fun drawing upon the classic universal monster movie template into such a beautiful degree that it even uses the old Bella Lugosi Dracula films with Nicholas Holt and Nicholas Cage superimposed in in the iconic roles to give the flashbacks of how they got together. Is it a film that I'm going to go back and rewatch? Probably once or twice, but it's not going to be something that I'm going to be beholden to. But it was a 90-minute joyride from start to finish and bloody and brutal in creative and hilarious ways. When you've seen someone using someone's arms as nunchucks, you've seen everything that you ever want to see in an action film. It also gave us a Dracula that is, yes, over the top because it's Nicolas Cage, but is evil. He's also petty. Yes. He's also manipulative and incredibly sarcastic. And it is the role that I think Nicolas Cage has spent all his life wanting to play because the audaciousness of his performance it gives him he doesn't just chew the scenery he bites it in the neck drinks it dry and then goes for the next neck to bite in this minutes later um it, it is a lot of fun it is it kept me guessing as to where it was going by the end of it it's all pretty slight but it's that doesn't matter because by the time you get to the ending if you bought into it then you're gonna have a really really good time to it as andy said it pays homage to um, 1931 Dracula and there is an element in Cage's performance of Bela Lugosi. It also pays homage to uh, Todd Browning's earlier and lost vampire movie London After Midnight in which the character wears a top hat and appears in a later scene. It knows that it's a vampire movie and does an awful lot with that and it also takes this element of what it's like to be in a toxic relationship. Cage and Holt are perfect polar opposites in this as well. And that w helps it work so well. Cage, like you've said, he's chewing scenery, he's biting scenery, he's doing everything with the scenery that he can and overacting in that glorious way that only Nicolas Cage can. And then you've got Holt, who is just so affable and charming. You cannot help but root for him throughout. His voiceovers work a treat for not only giving you the backstory, but also some of the punchlines of jokes, uh, his reactions to things, usually with like a, a, an offhand swear word floating about in his head when he realizes he's made a mistake on something. 
Holt has been like this throughout his career. He's always had that that likability. Yeah. And in this role, he's immensely likable. And you want him to break free of being a servant, despite the fact he's done some really bad things for Dracula for all the all these years. You just want him to be the better person. You hope that he's going to like pull through at the end. His action moments are hilarious. When he ingests bugs, he gains some power similar to Dracula's. And so he can like take down henchmen with some strange superpowers. His mannerisms throughout it is though is as though he doesn't particularly want to be doing that. He doesn't like it. He wants to still be the nice guy, but he's accidentally breaking limbs off people and slapping them with them. And when you've got those two working so well at the opposite end of the scale to each other, and then you add in the support cast around it, Ben Schwartz having fun as one of the... Uh, drug dealers teddy he's the he's the number one son who's an utter foul up isn't he yeah he, he's just an absolute mistake from start to finish but he gives so many of the best laughs from how he reacts to things again and then the big surprise and this has become the big surprise for both me and you in the past couple of years hasn't it aquafina, aquafina I, I think it's it's an underwritten role but she gives the movie its heart and she has a great chemistry with, with Nicholas Holt in it. Um, yeah, I think Aquafina, we, we both kind of entered into her orbit and we weren't very impressed. And then we saw her in Shang-Chi, Rear in the Last Dragon, and now this. And she is, uh, she's a great leading foil. She dominates every time she's on the screen. Uh, good chemistry. And as I said, when you've got someone like Nicholas Cage who is hamming it up, you need someone who can bring it down and she plays it. In fact, she underplays it and she gives it a sweetness that runs throughout the film. She has a reason mm. to do what she's there to do. And, and that gives her relationship with Renfield uh, some credibility. And it's a really lovely relationship. This is a, an action comedy. It's dark. There is plenty of gore, but it's kind of comedy gore. So you, you, it never feels, I mean, you get a guy who has his face ripped off, but it's funny. <laughs> it takes a lot of chances. Some of them, most of them hit, some of them don't, but this is bringing Dracula back in a way that makes him one of the best monster characters in, in Hollywood history. Yeah, he's genuinely a, a nasty piece of work, as Dracula should be. The trailer sold the film for precisely what it was, 90-minute slice of universal monster silliness with comedic over-the-top blood, plenty of laugh-out-loud moments, and just a fun core cast to make it charmingly not outstay its welcome. Get yourself off to the cinema and get this watched because I think that the joy of seeing something like this on the big screen won't be quite the same watching it on a home release. Okay, so those are our films for this week, but what's coming up over the next week? So at cinemas, it's quite packed at cinemas this next week. You might still get a chance to see Raging Bull's reissue for the 40th anniversary. Missing, which is the spiritual successor to Searching, arrives at cinemas this week. Three Musketeers D'Artagnan, which is the first part of the two-parter, yeah, we're giddy for that, aren't we? Very giddy for it. Junkhead arrives on limited release. Alien Day is on the 26th of April. So most cinemas across the UK are doing a double bill of the only two alien films that everyone needs to see, Alien and Aliens. And Evil Dead Rise is the big film that we're both looking forward to this coming week. I'm prepared to watch that from behind a cushion. Over on Now TV and Sky, it came out last year. I was okay with it. Nope. Lands this I week. I might revisit it, you know. I might. I... Yeah, I, I want to revisit it and give it another shot because there was something in there, but it just didn't quite connect with me. I want to see if maybe a second yeah. time round will will gel it a bit. And also, a Sky original, Blue Back Lands. So feel free to avoid that. <laughs> Over on Netflix, A Tourist's Guide to Love. 
And most people have been waiting for this in the UK for a while. Brooklyn Nine-Nine final season lands on Netflix. On Amazon, Judy Bloom Forever. On Disney Plus, I'm quite looking forward to it, even though it got scathing reviews. I'm still looking forward to it. And it has been commissioned for a season two. True Lies season one lands. And on Apple TV Plus, Ghosted, the Anna Diarmis and Chris Evans, Dexter Fletcher-led film. Well, it's kind of a rom-com where one of them is actually a, an undercover agent. It's on Apple TV. Of course, I'm going to be watching it. And that, folks, that brings us to the end of this week's show. Don't start hitting that finish button just yet because we've got to tell you about our neat things, stuff that we've enjoyed over the last week. Andy, as ever, goes first. Andy, what's your neat thing? This week, for many things, we're off to we're off to Audible, which uh, seems to be every three weeks to go to an Audible one, doesn't it? Which kind of proves how long it takes you to get through uh, um, through one of their books, basically. It's me bus journeys each day, so I can get like an hour and a half at the most each day. The most recent one that I've been listening to is With Nails. Oh, fantastic book! Richard E. Grant's biopic drawn from his diaries through the early years as he was a struggling actor just before With Nail and I through to as he found success in Hollywood. And it's such a good book. And as you'd expect, when I get the bio biographies on Audible, I always get the ones that has the actual author reading it. So Richard E. Grant telling it and chuckling whenever something amusing he'd written down or, you know, adding the bite and menace that he can sometimes add to the way that he talks about elements of the industry. And it's a fascinating study of an actor who struggles at the start, worries, how, you know, how's he going to actually get into the world of acting? Will he ever make any money? And then his own personal tragedies that impacted around the time of With Nail and I and how he grew from that point onwards. Like we said, for, the, for those who listen to the podcast when we were talking about, like, you know, a, a good biopic always focuses on the stuff around the film production. That's what this does so well, because whilst he's going through, and it's fascinating to hear him talking about the films that he worked on, it's more fascinating the parties that he went to, the people he bumped into, and the exploits that he got up to behind the scenes. And boy, he doesn't pull any punches. When he doesn't like someone, he makes it very clear. And he, he's even got snidey comments towards Steve Martin within this. And yet Steve Martin endorsed this book. <laughs> It's a great book. I read it some years back and I, I, uh, you're making me want to read it all over again. Uh, well, I, I'd recommend getting the Audible version, listen to him regale the story himself. He'd given all his diary notes to Steve Martin, says, I'm thinking of publishing these. I cast your eyes over them. And Steve Martin just went, well, that was a bit harsh. But um, yes, everyone should read this. And they've got a good budding friendship because they'd worked together on LA story. Even though they didn't necessarily see eye to eye on things, they built up a rapport. And that's what's great about Richard E. Grant is he just seems so genuine and pure in how he approaches things. And sometimes he rubs people up the wrong way as a result of just trying to be himself and not, not falling into that I'm fantastic darling trap that too many celebrities get into. It's a great, great listen. And I've now added the other Richard E. Grant um, autobiographies onto my Audible wants list. So we'll be using credits in the coming months to listen through them. My neat thing, and if you've not seen the entire series, and I highly, highly recommend that you, that you do that. Season four of Barry lands on Sky Comedy on Monday, April the 17th. So if you're listening to this after that date, then it'll be there to catch up on, on the Sky Catch-Up service. So if you don't know Barry, it is an absolute joy. It's a dark comedy drama series uh, created and starring Bill Hedder. It's the story of Barry, a US Marine and Afghanistan veteran, 
who works as a hitman. Um, he's lonely and he's dissatisfied with his life, uh, travels to LA uh, to kill a target and then finds a new sense of purpose when he joins a class full of aspiring actors being taught by the ever excellent Henry Winkler as Gene. And when I say ever excellent, I don't think Henry Winkler has ever been better than he has been in this show. It is phenomenal. It's dark, it's funny, and it's outrageously funny as despite Barry's efforts to leave behind his, his criminal past, he wants to become an actor and he struggles to escape this life as being a hitman. Bill Hader is, is not somebody that I, I really knew. He was always a supporting actor. I recognized him from Saturday Night Live. Uh, he directs a lot of the episodes of this. It is a phenomenal series. I watched the entire run of season one and season two uh, on a plane between Japan and Australia. It was that good. I could not stop watching it. As soon as one of these half hour episodes finished, I watched it again. Catch up with the entire series on Sky and then start watching season four. You will thank me for it. It is absolutely brilliant. And that, folks, that's us done for this week. Andy, any plans for the upcoming week? More Saw films, unfortunately. Oh, I might add your uh, neat thing there, because I've not watched Barry. Oh, you so have I might add that into him, um, soften the blow of the Saw films. It, it's it's a superb series. You'll love it. More Saw films. Oh, I'm regretting this. I've got to pick, pick a better franchise next time to sit with the daughter and watch. <laughs> we'll be back again with another show next week. Uh, get in touch. Drop us a line. In the meantime, I'll speak to you later. <laughs> okay. What kind of a show do we have for these folks today? Who knows? <laughs> we'll just see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> we could plan the perfect show and then we'll go off on a tangent and it'll be something completely different. Tangents are good. Okay, we'll do the radio telling intro grand, first. Telling grandkids one day about like like the COVID lockdowns mm. and they'll just look at you like, what? What, what happened? I've also come to the conclusion as well that you'll tell like your grandkids and your great grandkids about the COVID things and like, you know, there was this disease rampant around the world. And then they'll look at photos of this era with everyone doing duck face and go, did it affect your mouths? <laughs> so stick around for some filmtastic geekery. Stick around. <laughs> Start already. <laughs> no, no. You said stick around. Of course, I'm going to do that. <laughs> we got a first scattering. Repon oh, re we got a first scattering of words pronounced incorrectly. Fiddler on, Fiddler the, roof. on the roof. I'll say that. Um, yes, I said roof. Yeah. Fiddler on the roof. Fiddler on the roof. Fiddler on the roof. It was a Muppet version of it. Andy slips into dream world of Brian Reynolds. <laughs> yeah. We need that sort of wavery, liney thing that they always go on about in, uh, yeah, in Wayne's World. <laughs> like the Beatles album just keeps going on that long note for number nine number nine number nine you know, have a cup of tea have a biscuit come back and it's still there number nine <laughs> um, you've been a massive fan of uh, Radio Silence. I was wondering where you're going then. You've been a massive bellend. <laughs> <laughs> the character of Wedge Antilles. Oh, I've got a right wedgie. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a right wedgie in me Antilles. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why I never had an offshoot series. Y'all listening, y'all. <laughs> y'all listening to the film file. 
here on No Barriers Radio. It's <laughs> 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 the animated version. <laughs> Ask a friend to help. Use your nose. Yeah, use your nose. Whatever. T- tongue your device. That sounds wrong. <laughs> but, you know, you forgive it because you don't want to see his tallywhacker uh, swinging about in the vines. <laughs> I might snip that bit. So to speak. (laughs) That's your quote for the week. That was what I was going to do. That's what I was going to do, but I'm going to leave you with you doing it.